0: The reading this evening is Colossians 2, verses 9 to 15. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us, and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross.
1: On the 6th of April 1771, or it might have been 1774, Jack Upperton was taken from the jail in Horsham To the public gallows in the Carfax, and there executed in front of a large crowd of onlookers. His crime was robbing the mail mail coach as it made its way along the narrow woodland track that in those days served as the main highway between Stedding and Portsmouth. He was recognised, arrested, put on trial at East Grinstead, and sentenced to death by hanging. While he waited for the sentence to be carried out, he was in Horsham Jail. And after he'd been hanged, his body was to be removed to a location near the scene of the crime and put on public display on a gibbet. This was done. His dead body was dipped in tar by the town blacksmith and placed in a gibbet on the South Downs, where it remained on display for two years before his body was eventually buried in the woods. The practice of not burying the bodies of convicted criminals, but instead putting them on display as a public warning, goes a long way back. It was normal practice, actually, for the bodies of those who had been crucified by the Romans to be left on crosses, to be picked at by birds and wild animals. The bodies of those who had been crucified rarely received a decent burial. And we have Joseph of Arimathea to thank for sticking his neck out and asking for Pilate's permission to place the body of Jesus in a tomb cut into the hillside. We don't know what happened to the bodies of the two thieves crucified with Jesus, but it's unlikely that they were treated with anything in terms of respect. Crucifixion was a particularly excruciating way to die. We get the term excruciating from the word crucify but it was also a degrading and shameful way to die. The victim was flogged, paraded through the streets, stripped naked and fastened to a cross and left there to die of exposure, exhaustion and shock. Usually after death, the body was simply left there as an appalling and vivid display of what happened to slaves and criminals who fell foul of summary Roman justice. Crucifixion was designed to be a powerful deterrent to Rome's enemies. The clear message was, if you oppose us, this is what we will do to you. It was a spectacle designed to provoke revulsion and disgust, and it was very successful in doing so. So the message that God had acted to save the world through his son being crucified... Could not fail to fascinate and appall everyone who heard it. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, those who accepted its truth found that God had acted in wisdom and power through the cross of Christ to bring salvation to anyone who put their trust in Him. In our reading from Colossians tonight, we find images and ideas. From the practice of crucifixion being used to portray different aspects of the salvation that Christ secured for us through his death. Writing to the Galatians, Paul says Did we not openly betray, portray to you Christ crucified? Did we not tell you what that was like? Did we not show you what had happened? And in Colossians we get an idea of how he did that. Rather than shying away from the horrors of crucifixion, he uses verbal imagery to confront his readers with the significance of what Christ's death on the cross means to them. So in chapter 2.13 he talks about being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. The language is quite stark really. The image is one of a naked dead body on a cross. Crucified, dead for the sins that person had committed. That's the imagery that the language conveys. People on crosses were something that everyone would either have seen or heard of. The language of being dead in your trespasses summons up the picture of the dead body of a criminal. Hanging or placed in a gibbet. The New International Version is actually a bit coy in talking about the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. The word for uncircumcision is actually a mispronunciation or maybe a deliberate boulderisation of the word for the foreskin of the male penis. So it takes the attention precisely to that part of the body that you most wish not to think about. The word translated sinful nature is actually the word for flesh. So, even though Jesus was, was circumcised, the language here is designed to provoke into the mind's eye the vivid and visual and abhorrent spectacle of the naked dead body of the convicted criminal hanging on a cross. That is what it means to be dead in your trespasses. That's the visual representation of what it meant, of what people would have imagined or thought about. And that was how Jesus was. Before Joseph of Arimathea had his body taken down, wrapped in burial cloths and placed in the tomb. But Paul does not shy away from that spectacle. He forces us to confront it full on and says, actually, the naked dead body of Christ on the cross represents you in all your sinfulness and guilt and shame and mortality. But just as God raised Jesus from the grave. So God has made you alive with Christ. It's a radical, shocking image of how Jesus has saved us and it's important that we hear what Paul has to say here. Thankfully, we live in a day and age where we can travel down from Horsham to Worthing without passing the body of Jack Upperton or someone like him hanging on a gibbet on the way. We don't do that anymore. We're not confronted with that kind of horrible picture anymore. Yet disturbingly, actually the kind of loathing that people felt when they saw a body on a gibbet is the feeling that some people have about themselves today. Self-hatred, self-loathing, self-rejection, it manifests itself in feelings of utter worthlessness and sometimes can lead to self-harm as people inflict on themselves the kind of treatment they deserve. Sometimes people feel as if life is just not worth living. Physically alive, but dead on the inside. And that that body on the gibbet is how some people feel about themselves. But Paul says to those who sometimes plumb those depths of despair, God gave new life to the tortured body of his son that was exposed to public humiliation And disgrace upon the cross. And no matter how you feel about yourself, He can do the same for you. God raised Jesus from the dead, so God offers new life to those who feel they have no life left to live. Please don't make the mistake of thinking I'm minimizing or trivializing how awful depression or despair or mental illness can be. I'm not saying all you need to do is become a Christian and everything will be all right. But what I am saying is that when all we see in ourselves is death and disgrace, then Jesus is the one who's plumbed those debts for us. And he's with us. And as God lifted his son out of disgrace and humiliation and vulnerability and death to new life, God wants to do the same for us. Lifting us out of death, into life. There's no trivialization here. The cross of Christ was too awful, too vivid, too real for that. But because it was that awful and that real, the cross of Christ can make a difference to us when we plumb the depths of self hatred and despair. The body hanging on a cross, the worst possible place to be, is the place where Christ has been to redeem us from that place. And bring us life. And Paul continues God forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that stood against us and was opposed to us. He took it away and nailed it to the cross. And again, it's probably a visual aspect of the execution of Jesus that Paul is summoning to mind here. Because when he hung on the cross above Jesus' head, there was a sign saying, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In the eyes of Rome, that was his crime. He was executed on the political charge of treason, of setting himself up as a rival king to the emperor. And with all his talk about the kingdom of God, you can see how plausible such a charge would have been. It was common practice for criminals on the cross to have the reason for their execution nailed to the cross on which they died, so people could see what kind of crime it was that fitted such punishment and where the NIV talks about a written code the word they used word used there means a record of indebtedness and in Jewish thinking a debt is a common way of referring to a sin so the sign has a list of sins committed of laws broken of what we have done and it's there on public display for everyone to see the list that stands against us All our faults and failings held up to public examination and scrutiny. And the worst of it is, it's true. We don't have a leg to stand on. There are no extenuating circumstances, no excuses, no one to share the blame. The list of sins that we've committed is detailed and comprehensive and accurate. And it's like it's all up there on the screen at the end of the service for everyone to read... A bit of a horrible prospect, isn't it? But Paul says that God has forgiven us for all those things that we've done. He hasn't just made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And that list of sins that we've committed, every single one of them is is cancelled out. The record of them is erased, obliterated, scrubbed out. Everything that was and has been taken down to be used as damning evidence against us, is gone and gone for good. God has taken it away and nailed it to the cross, Paul says. Which cross? The cross of Jesus, of course. Because when he died, he took our sins. All the wrongs we thought or said or done were carried by Jesus when he died on the cross for us. So, you see Jesus hanging there, and you look at the sign above his head, and it no longer says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Instead, when you look at Jesus, on the sign above his head is the list of all the things that you have done wrong. You can recognize and identify the list as your own, because nobody else has said and done those things. And what you see is Jesus dying in your place, bearing your sin. Taking the blame, paying the penalty, dying the death. You, you're forgiven. You can go free. There's no need to be afraid of future punishment or retribution because Jesus has dealt with all that in your place and for your sake. And you're simply forgiven, not because you deserve it or because you could be let off this time with a warning. Now you're forgiven because the Son of God loved you enough to lay down his life for your sins, to take your place, to carry your sin, so that you, whoever you are, whatever you've done, so that you can be assured of forgiveness. Whatever stands against you was nailed to the cross of Christ. And through the cross of Christ, you have been forgiven. There is absolutely No condemnation whatsoever for those who are in Christ because Christ died for you. That's grace. Then there's a third picture of God disarming the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through the cross. Back in December, a couple of Australian tourists visiting an island in Indonesia were found guilty of stealing a bicycle. They were paraded through the streets on a walk of shame, with placards round their necks saying that they were thieves. They got off lightly. In many societies, a walk of shame consists of being stripped naked to be paraded through the streets as a public spectacle of contempt. Contempt. People living in Rome would have been used to seeing Roman victory processions where captured slaves are brought into the city, their humiliation and degradation being part of the Roman triumph. Jesus on his way to the cross was paraded through the streets. He was stripped naked as a public spectacle. That was what the rulers and powers of this world did to him. Again, it's an image of what Jesus went through. And again, Paul doesn't flinch from portraying that spectacle, but he turns it on its head. Because the cross was not the place of the ultimate humiliation and defeat of God's Son. On the contrary, it was the place where he won the victory over the very powers that sought to vanquish him. They are the ones who are disarmed and stripped naked through the cross. They are the ones who are vanquished and led as captives in Christ's victory parade. They are the ones who are defeated and it is Christ who triumphs over them. The whole thing is split round 180 degrees and reversed. It's about 30 years since Tom Wright published his little Tyndale commentary on Colossians. Rumour had it he wrote it in a matter of a couple of weeks. But his comment on this passage is so memorable it's always stayed with me since I first read it. So I will read it again to you now. The rulers and authorities of Rome and of Israel, as Caird points out, the best government and the highest religion the world of that time had ever known, conspired to place Jesus on the cross. These powers, angry at his challenge to their sovereignty, stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him. In one of his most dramatic statements of the paradox of the cross, and one more over which shows in what physical detail Paul could envisage the horrible death that Jesus had died, he declares that on the contrary, on the cross, God was stripping them naked, was holding them up to public contempt, and leading them in his own triumphal procession in Christ the crucified Messiah. When the powers had done their worst, crucifying the Lord of glory incognito on the charge of blasphemy (coughs) and rebellion, They had overreached themselves. He, neither blasphemer nor rebel, was in fact their rightful sovereign. They thereby exposed themselves to what they were, usurpers of the authority which was properly his. The cross, therefore, becomes the source of hope for all who had been held captive under their rule, enslaved in fear and mutual suspicion. Christ breaks the last hold that the powers had over his people by dying on their behalf. He now welcomes them into a new family, in which the ways of the old world, its behaviour, its distinctions of race and class and sex, its blind obedience to the forces of politics, economics, prejudice and superstition, these things have become quite simply out of date. A ragged and defeated rabble. What's the cross of Christ mean? It means defeat for the powers and values of this world order. The triumph of God's kingdom. It means the forgiveness of all our sins as Christ dies in our place on the cross. His body exposed there is the place where he identifies with us in our shame and our humiliation and our self-loathing to bring us new life through his resurrection from the dead. It is life-changing good news that's been around for 2,000 years and which is still as powerful today as it was when Paul proclaimed that gospel in the churches where he went and the churches to which he wrote. I'm going to invite you to listen in a time of reflection to a song I cast my mind to Calvary. get it's a visual song about Jesus dying on the cross for us. We're invited to see his wounds, his hands, his feet, and to recognise the impact that his death on the cross has for us and our lives.